Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Last week we started our dive into the book of Revelation. So a couple quick reminders here. First of all, remember this book was written by the Apostle John in the late 90s AD. He was an older man by this point. And this letter is written to seven churches in Asia Minor who were facing persecution. So remember we said that the main purpose of this book is to comfort and encourage suffering believers not to give us every single detail about the end times or to answer every single question about the end times. And keep in mind that Revelation references or quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. So if we want to understand Revelation, we need to look to the Old Testament, not to newspapers or social media. So those are a few of the things that we talked about last week. We also covered the first five chapters of Revelation. And where we left off, remember, John had been ushered to the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5. And God has a scroll with seven seals. And the scroll represents God's redemptive purposes for mankind and really for all of creation. But the seals must be broken in order for these plans to come to pass. And remember, there's nobody to open the seals until Jesus comes along. John sees Jesus as a slaughtered lamb who's now standing. He's been raised to new life. And Jesus takes the scroll. And this is when a worship session to end all worship sessions breaks out. All of creation rejoices. So that's where we left off last time. And just a quick look ahead where we're going to go in these next chapters, chapters 6 through 10. We're going to see what happens as these seven seals are opened by Jesus. And then after the seven seals are opened, there will be seven trumpets. So the seven seals lead to the seven trumpets. And that will take us through the chapters for this week. And actually, we're not going to quite get to the seventh trumpet this week. But I want to preface this discussion, before we get into this, I want to emphasize something I said last week. Remember we said since Revelation is apocalyptic literature, we can expect the heavy use of symbols and imagery. And we've already seen that just a few chapters in. In other words, Revelation isn't easy to understand. Okay, let's just call it what it is. That fact should create a lot of humility in us as interpreters. I've spent a lot of time reading different commentaries and listening to different teachings on the book of Revelation. And the conclusion that I've come to is that nobody really has this figured out. And you know what? I think it's meant to be that way. What do I mean by that? Well, understand there were a whole set of prophecies before Jesus's first coming. I'm talking about the Old Testament prophets. Before the Messiah came, before Jesus came, there were many prophecies. But those prophecies weren't really clearly understood until after Jesus came. The prophecies only became clear after we had hindsight. 
That's part of why many Jews missed the coming of the Messiah. They had misconceptions about who they thought the Messiah would be. So you might wonder, why, why aren't prophecies more clear? But Paul actually tells us why in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, We speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul's saying that God kept his wisdom, his plan of salvation, he kept it hidden from the rulers of this age. Now, who are these rulers of this age? He's talking about the powers of darkness, evil spiritual beings. Remember, only God is all-knowing. Satan and his demons are not all-knowing. And God kept certain knowledge from them, from evil, in order to accomplish his purposes. In other words, prophecies about Jesus were purposely vague. God didn't reveal all of his cards. Because if he did, evil wouldn't have tried to crucify Jesus. They thought they were winning, but all along, they were just helping God's plan. God had the whole thing rigged all along. So if that's what happened with prophecy the first time around, I believe, and this is a personal conviction, that we can expect the same thing the second time around. Prophecies about the end times aren't going to fully make sense until we have hindsight. God purposely doesn't put all of his cards on the table. He keeps evil in the dark, pun intended, in order to accomplish his purposes. So going back to my earlier point, nobody really has this figured out. And I think that's on purpose. God could have said, here's exactly what's going to happen point by point. Here's when it's going to happen. But that's not what he did. Because he doesn't want evil to know his plans. And there's probably some sense in which he doesn't want us to know every detail either. He wants us to trust him. Now, I know that may seem like a cop-out answer to some. You may not like that. But here's reality. That's what happened with the first round of prophecy. So why would we expect the second round of prophecies about the end times, about Jesus' second coming, to be any different? So all of that to say, again, we should have humility when we interpret the book of Revelation. I would also encourage you to don't become too obsessive about the details of end times. Sometimes people can get really, really wrapped up in this stuff. But nobody really knows the details. Only God knows. So as we go through Revelation, I'm going to try to give you multiple views. Now, you may hear some personal biases come out. They always come out somewhat. But I don't think Revelation is clear enough for us to say this is the one view. And I would actually say if you hear anyone who teaches like that about Revelation, this is the one view, black and white, it's clear as day, I would warn you to be cautious about what that person is saying. Because I I personally feel like it would be intellectually dishonest of me to say, here's the one right view. So I'm going to do my best to give kind of a balanced approach here. And I'll say this too, no viewpoint is without issues. All of man's attempts to explain revelation in the end times has its shortcomings. So I encourage you to to keep an open mind here. Now, before we jump into Revelation 6, right off the bat, 
there are differences in interpretation. Because the way you interpret Revelation 6 through 19 is determined, at least in part, by how you interpret the book of Daniel. Remember, we said Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament. And the book of Daniel also contains apocalyptic literature about the end times. Now, we can't get into Daniel in detail here. There's just way too much to unpack. We could have multiple episodes just on that. But just to give you a quick version here, Daniel 9 gives us a prophecy regarding 70 weeks. And there are numerous things that are going to happen during those 70 weeks. It says that they will bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That's a huge prophecy. There's a lot of things going on there. Now, when Daniel says 70 weeks, he's actually talking about weeks of years. I know that might sound confusing, but in other words, he's talking about 70 times 7 years, or 490 years. Now, some people take these to be literal years, and Daniel says that after 69 weeks of years, or 483 years, an anointed one will be cut off, meaning that the Messiah will be killed. Then during the 70th week, which Daniel describes in chapter 9, verse 27, it says someone will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Now, I know there's a lot going on there, but some people say that the 70th week of Daniel hasn't happened yet. They say that it refers to a future time of tribulation when the Antichrist will come and desolate a future temple, a rebuilt temple. And most people who hold this view say that this will be a literal seven-year tribulation in the future. And that tribulation, they'll say, is what's described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And that is certainly a possibility. But other people will read Daniel and reach different conclusions. They'll say that the person who makes the covenant in Daniel 9.27 is Jesus. They'll say it's talking about the new covenant that he makes with many, a term that Jesus himself uses. And the reference to putting an end to sacrifices, they'll say, is because as the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the one who puts an end to sacrifices because he was the perfect sacrifice. And people will say that the destruction Daniel 9.27 talks about might refer to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD by the Romans. So people who hold this view point out that there's no evidence of a gap between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel because in the first view, there is a large gap between the 69th and the 70th week. This view, people say there's really no evidence for that gap and there are no specific verses linking the 70th week of Daniel to a future tribulation period. So some people will say that the 70 weeks of Daniel have already happened. Other people will say that the 70th week is half completed. Jesus has brought an end to sacrifices, but the rest of the week represents the entire period until Christ returns, the entire period where evil is allowed to have influence until Christ returns. Some people see the entire 490 years as symbolic, which some people will push back against. But keep in mind, many numbers in apocalyptic literature are intended to be symbolic. 
And the concept of seven times seven was represented by the year of Jubilee in Israel, if you remember the Old Testament. So some people see the concept of 70 times 7 here in Daniel 9 as being like a tenfold year of Jubilee. It's a Jubilee times 10 where God accomplishes all of his great purposes. So you can see already how there are differences in how to view this and how you interpret Daniel 9 is going to affect how you interpret Revelation. And that, that's only the beginning of it, but for the sake of time, we have to keep it brief here. But all of that to say, some people view Revelation 6 through 19 as being a seven-year tribulation period in the future. Other people actually see Revelation as describing the entire period of history between Jesus' first and second comings. And still other people might see it as a future tribulation period, but not necessarily specifically seven years. So keep in mind there aren't necessarily clear-cut answers here. And even within these views themselves, there are differences. Because some people who say, for example, Revelation 6 through 19 refers to a future seven-year period of tribulation, they have different stances. So some people will say that the church is actually raptured before that tribulation period. So they'll look at verses like 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which talks about how believers who are still alive will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And they'll look at verses like Revelation 3.10, which seems to tell believers that God will keep them from the difficult times of testing that will come on the entire earth. But other people will say, wait a minute, the word in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 isn't talking about a secret rapture. It's actually the word used to describe people welcoming a royal figure into a city. In other words, it's describing believers welcoming Jesus to earth where he will establish his kingdom. And they'll point out that just because God guards or preserves his people, like in Revelation 3.10, it doesn't mean he removes them completely from suffering. And actually, the pattern in Scripture is that God's people do suffer. Now, God preserves his people, but not by removing them from the world completely, but by preserving them in the midst of trials. God preserves his people by keeping them from turning from him. So some people will say that the church is raptured before the tribulation. Some say the rapture only describes believers welcoming Christ to earth after the period of tribulation. Some people even see a rapture in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. So you can see there are many different flavors of these views. But finally, getting to Revelation 6 through 10 itself, Revelation 6, in Revelation 6, Jesus begins to open the seals of this scroll that we talked about before. The first four seals bring about four different horsemen, and this is actually imagery from Zechariah. And these horsemen likely represent things like war and famine and rampant death. And again, some people would see these as referring to specific events during a future seven-year period. But some people would say this refers to the entire period between Jesus' first and second comings. Now, the fifth seal is a little bit different. When the fifth seal is opened, John sees the souls of those who have been martyred because of their faith in Christ, and they cry out for justice, but they're told to wait a little bit longer. And then the sixth seal seems to be an answer to the martyrs' prayers because judgment is poured out. The created order starts to fall apart. John uses imagery from the Old Testament about earthquakes and the sun turning black and, and stars falling from the sky, which is imagery from Isaiah 34, 4. And so the sixth seal brings about the great day of the Lord that the prophets 
talk about. Now, some more differences in interpretation here. Revelation talks about judgment brought about in three sets of seven, with some breaks in between. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Some people see these as sequential, literal events, but some people see these three sets of seven as describing the same period of events. Why? Because you'll notice that each of the seven judgments seem to bring about the final judgment, the day of the Lord. So John may be writing in what's known as a recursive pattern, meaning he's circling back and retelling the same things from a different perspective. So some people would see final judgment here in the sixth seal. But then we have an intermission. So at the end of Revelation 6, it says, Who is able to stand? In other words, who will be spared from God's wrath? Well, chapter 7 answers that. John hears those who have been sealed or or marked by God. And there are 144,000 of them, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But again, remember, numbers are often symbolic in apocalyptic literature. Nobody, except for maybe Jehovah's Witnesses, believes that literally only 144,000 people will be saved. So what does this number represent? Well, some people would say this represents a large number of Jews saved during the seven-year tribulation. But I would argue, and this is one area where my personal bias is going to come out, but I, I do say this with humility, I would argue this represents the entire people of God. The number 12 represents the people of God. You have the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. You have the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And this number is squared, 12 times 12 times 1,000, which is another symbolic number representing a large quantity. And that's where this number 144,000 comes from. So I believe this is a way of saying a large number of people representing the entire people of God. Now, one sign that this is meant to be interpreted symbolically is that this list of the 12 tribes of Israel given here doesn't match any list from the Old Testament. And, and I think this is actually more important, the rest of chapter 7 seems to give us an answer as to who these people are. Remember back in chapter 5, John is told about a lion. He hears something about a lion, but when he looks, he sees a lamb. Well, here he's told about 144,000 from the 12 tribes, but then he looks, and what does he see? He sees a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Again, this seems to be describing the entire people of God standing before the throne. The number 144,000 is symbolic. It represents the people of God from every language and tribe and tongue. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And then at the end of chapter 7, one of the elders around the throne tells John that these people before the throne are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. Again, some people would see this as referring to a literal seven-year period in the future. Some people would see this as referring to the entire period of trials between Christ's first and second comings. Then in chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken and there's silence in heaven. And this silence indicates that judgment is coming. There's only 30 minutes of silence, which means judgment is coming soon. And the breaking of the seventh seal actually leads to the blowing of the seven trumpets. So what you'll see is that these three sets of seven, these three sets of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, 
the bowls, they're kind of like nesting dolls. Opening one leads to the other. So opening the seventh seal leads to the seven trumpets. Now, again, some would say the seven trumpets are a different sequence of events. Some people would say that John is now going to describe the same sequence of events from a different perspective. The seals used a lot of imagery from Zechariah. Now John is going to use some imagery from the Exodus and the plagues to describe the same thing as what some people would say. Regardless, the first trumpet brings judgment on the earth through hail and fire and blood. The second trumpet brings judgment on the seas. The third trumpet brings judgment on rivers and springs. The fourth trumpet brings about a darkening of the sun and the moon and stars, similar to what we saw in the seals. And so we have all of creation being affected here. Then there's a quick pause. We have an eagle flying, and he says, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. This is a way of telling us that these last three trumpets are about to be worse than the first four. The last three trumpets are called the three woes. So we come to chapter 9, and we get the fifth trumpet or the first woe. Now, admittedly, there is some very difficult imagery here in chapter 9. But again, the key to Revelation is the Old Testament. A lot of this imagery in chapter 9 comes from the book of Joel. Joel describes the day of the Lord using locust imagery. It's also an allusion to the ten plagues of Egypt. But these are clearly not ordinary locusts in Revelation because they have power like scorpions and they have the appearance of horses ready for battle. So these locusts are likely demons. It says they come from the abyss. And these demons are allowed to wreak havoc. But they are told not to harm the earth or anyone who belongs to God, referring to the 144,000 that we saw in Revelation 7. They're only allowed to affect those not sealed by God. And it says they're allowed to do that for five months. Again, some people see this as a literal time period. Others see that as a symbolic reference, meaning a limited amount of time. But regardless, the fifth trumpet brings demonic influence. Then the sixth trumpet blows and we see more horsemen here. They bring about plagues of fire and smoke and sulfur that brings about large amounts of death. But even death and plagues aren't enough to bring about repentance. People continue in their sinful ways. Then we come to chapter 10. and There's a break after the sixth trumpet and John sees a, a mighty angel here. And the angel puts his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, which indicates his message applies to the whole world. And when this angel calls out in a loud voice, it says the seven thunders roar. And this is interesting because John is about to write down what the seven thunders say. But John hears a voice from heaven telling him not to write the message down. That's chapter 10, verse 4. Why is that significant? Well, I think this highlights what I said earlier. Even though God is telling us some things about the end of the world, other things are still concealed by God on purpose. We're not meant to know everything. That's important for us to keep in mind. And I know that's frustrating because we want all the answers. But nobody other than God has them. So anyway, going back to chapter 10, it's just an important point to make. Going back to chapter 10, this angel that John sees has a little scroll in his hand. And some see this as referring to the scroll that the Lamb already opened in chapters 5 through 6. Others see this as being a different scroll. But regardless, John is told to eat the scroll. 
And the angel tells him it will be bitter in your stomach, but sweet in your mouth. Now this echoes Ezekiel. Again, we're seeing over and over again, all of the imagery from Revelation comes from the Old Testament. This echoes Ezekiel when God tells him to eat the scroll that's given to him. And for Ezekiel, it's also as sweet as honey in his mouth. But why is this scroll that John eats sweet and bitter at the same time? Well, God's word is always a delight. It's always sweet to the taste. It's always a joy. But since it's a word of judgment, John basically has a stomach ache at the same time because judgment is coming. So why does John have to eat the scroll? Well, Revelation 10 verse 11 tells us, it says, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Talking to John. So like Ezekiel, John must receive God's words in his heart first before he can give them out to others. John is literally ingesting God's words so that he can give them to others. And these words taste sweet. They're a joy because they're from God, they're God's words, but they also cause John grief because they're words of judgment. So that brings us to the end of our chapters for this week. Next week, we'll finish up the trumpet judgments and then we'll get into John's descriptions of of Satan in the end times. But I think that's more than enough for now. I know this is a lot to take in and you may be frustrated that I didn't give more specific answers here. But remember, God only gives us what he deems necessary. He's in control. He doesn't reveal everything to us and that's on purpose. He doesn't let evil know his full plan ahead of time. So there is a lot of uncertainty in these chapters, but don't get hung up on the details. One thing we do know for sure, Jesus is going to redeem people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. This is the great commission that he's given to every one of us to go and make disciples of all nations, all the people groups of the world. Let's live for that. Because in the end, that's what's really going to matter. When we stand before the throne, we're not going to think about how we wish we would have watched more Netflix or football or put more money in our 401k or put in more hours at the office. I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad, but they aren't the main thing. Let's give our lives to taking as many people as possible with us to eternity. So I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, who can you share the gospel with this week? Who can you intentionally invest in and share God's life-giving words with? We may not know all the details about the end times, but we can share the good news that our God is still on his throne and he's ushering all of history toward its appointed end. So let's live on mission this week and let's do it all for his glory.